0: Last Sunday evening, we were looking at uh, King Saul and uh, how uh, he only partially obeyed God. Do you remember that? And we saw that partial obedience is actually disobedience in God's eyes. And the consequences of Saul's disobedience was that God told him, of course, that his kingdom was going to be taken away from him and given to another. And that's exactly what happened as you read through the Old Testament. You can follow that. God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, and uh, God directs him there to anoint Jesse's youngest son, David, to be king. And after he becomes king, David leads the Israelites to victory over the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem. David's made that the new capital city, as it were. And then God gives the Israelites a period of rest. And during that time, David builds himself a grand palace in Jerusalem. And that brings us to the passage that we're looking at this evening. So if you've got a Bible app on your phone, or maybe you've got a tablet with you, or you can use one of the Bibles at the end of every pew, why don't you turn with me this evening to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Many commentators have referred to this as the most important chapter in the Old Testament. and I hope like me you'll be excited by this chapter. Anne's looking at me going, huh it's amazing you wait this is going to be good i hope <laughs> so we're going to be able to see a lot more from this chapter anne's going to come she's uh, sitting here because she's going to be up and down a little bit so she's going to come and kick us off a little bit now thanks anne so much <laughs>
1: After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you.
0: Thanks, sir. So it's interesting how that chapter kicks off. David's looking around at the splendor of his own palace and compares that to the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is housed. And uh, he decides he wants to do something nice for God. So he thinks to himself, a well, blinking neck. God's residing in a tent. I'm in a four-bedroomed a persimmon home. So why don't I do something nice and uh, see whether we can build a house for God? And enter Nathan the prophet. first time we're introduced to Nathan. Uh, most of you will know he'll continue to play a very important part in David's life, not least because he's the prophet that's going to confront David later on when uh, David has shenanigans with Bathsheba. But here, Nathan the prophet of God, without so much, you notice, as a, a side glance to consult God, Tells David there, ah, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. The Lord is with you. Now, before we proceed any further, let me just say that I think that, for the most part, David's motives and his judgment, I think, are good. I mean, we get that, don't we? You know, he's he's very aware the God of heaven has a a little little tent from Millet's, And he's living in a blinking palace. And he thinks to himself, that's not right. I need to put this right. And he wanted to do that, perhaps out of gratefulness to God for all that he'd received, all that God had done for him. Certainly nothing wrong with that. And don't forget, he'd even sought counsel from a prophet, had not he? He'd confided in uh, Nathan and had asked him, you know, what should I do, as it were? But as we're about to see, there's one fatal flaw. In David's reasoning here, on the same floor, unfortunately, that's within us. But I'll make uh, say more about that in a moment. So, before we identify the floor, we need to point out that in these first three verses that Anne's just read for us, there are a very uh, important couple of word plays that are woven throughout this chapter. And uh, you know me, I like word uh, problems. So the first word is a verb. And unfortunately, it's not very easy to see. I don't know what version of the Bible you've got in front of you. Uh, On the screen, we're using the NIV tonight. It's uh, the one that we tend to use, by and large, week by week. But in most English translations, throughout this passage, the Hebrew word yasab, uh, which literally means to dwell, is translated as settled or living or remains. So there are three different words in the text. It's the same Hebrew word, but it's just uh, translated differently. So, verse 1, the king was settled. Do you see it in your Bible? Uh, the Hebrew, yasab, in his palace. Verse 2, here I am living, yasab, in a house of cedar or palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains. Yasab, in a tent. So if you were to translate that little passage a little bit better and more consistently, what you would have is this. The king dwelt in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, here I am dwelling in the house of Cedar while the ark of God dwells in a tent. That's very important. We'll come back to that in a moment. The second Hebrew word is the Hebrew word bayat, meaning house. Again, the NIV is a bit unhelpful. It translates the word once as palace and once as house. But in Hebrew, it's exactly the same word. Verse 1, the king was settled down in the palace, bayat. Here I am, verse 2, living or dwelling in a house, bayat. So put all of that together, translate the whole thing consistently with both Hebrew words being used properly, and we'd have this. The king dwelt in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, here I am dwelling in a house of cedar, while the ark of God dwells in a tent. And it's really important that we get this. So I hope you don't think I'm just making something out of nothing. The key thing to understand is that David wants to build a house for God's presence to dwell in. That's what he wants to do. He wants to construct something that is permanent, that is solid, that is a place where the ark, which symbolized God's living presence, could dwell. So bear that in mind as Anne comes back and she's going to read the next little section for us from verses four through nine. Thanks, sir.
1: That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people israel i have been with you wherever you have gone and i have cut off all your enemies from before you
0: Now, the fatal flaw here is that neither david nor nathan asks god what he wants hope you notice that you often go through life don't you thinking you know best But there's no consultation of God. I love the way God retorts, though, just deals with David here, treats him with grace and with mercy, and takes time in that little passage that Anne's just read to explain why David doesn't need to build a house for him. See, the whole idea is that God can never be confined. So let's take this building. problem is a lot of people view precious places like this as a place where God dwells. As if God is here and you need to come here to meet with him. Not biblical. Not theologically accurate. And certainly something that we're seeing God wants no truck with whatsoever. This is a lovely building. But it is a building. It is a chapel. And we are the church. Living people. Living stones. So this is a place where we come together to meet. In fact, Baptists met together in chapels or meeting houses. That's how we started. That's how it was referred to. So there's no need to build God a house. God can't be confined to a structure. From the time God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, God has specifically directed Moses, you remember, to build a portable tabernacle, not a permanent temple. Because as the people moved around, God could travel with them and manifest his presence in their midst, wherever they were. Now, we can't know for sure what's exactly on David's mind here. I think, though, it's fair to deduce from what God has said to him that David somehow had the idea that by building a permanent temple, he could in some way keep God in a box, and God seems to be addressing that kind of mindset when he reminds David that he took David from the pasture, made him king, has given him success, and been with him every step of the way. Now you'll notice in the middle of verse 9, if you look at your Bible closely, the change in verb tenses, and that's important, from verse 4 through to the middle of verse 9, God uses past tenses those are the verbs there to recount what he's done for David what he's done for Israel in the middle of verse 9 though it suddenly switches and we get future tense verbs verbs so here it is i took you i've been with you i cut off all your enemies but now i will make your name great so now god is switching from what has been to what is going to be this is really important as we explore this whole notion Of where does God live? David wants him to live in a box. But God's got other plans. Thanks, Sam. And this is the last one. You'll
1: be all right. Now, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers i will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body i will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i will be his father and he shall be my son when he does wrong i will punish him with the rod of men with floggings inflicted by men but my love will never be taken away from him as i took it away from saul whom i removed from before you your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me your throne shall be established forever nathan reported to david all the words of this entire revelation Thanks, Sam.
0: Thanks for being prepared to do it in a marathon. That's great.
1: So did you see it?
0: Did you see how things have switched from what God has done, the past tense, to what God is going to do, the future tense? You can see it there. It's quite simple to see it in the text. God is looking forward. God is making promises. Now, when God makes a promise, that's something often called a covenant. And uh, this is often referred to as the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. And there are several other promises or covenants that God has made to his people and you can read through these in scripture we've got time to go through them all tonight we've got the Adamic covenant where do you think that one's found? Genesis. Genesis. Yes exactly right because God promises Adam doesn't he that uh, one day Adam's offspring would overcome e- the evil one then you've got the, how do you how you pronounce that? Naharic covenant noahic covenant and um, so that's where god promised what did he promise noah never flood the earth again that's right and then you've got the abrahamic covenant and the abrahamic covenant is where god promised abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and that those descendants and through his descendants rather all the people on the earth would be blessed and then you've got the mosaic covenant and that's a conditional covenant where god promises to bless israel if they obey him. And the Davidic covenant that we've just read builds on those four previous covenants. And God promises further revelation about how he's going to fulfill the promises he's been making in those covenants. So, do you remember earlier how we saw the word play around the word by it, meaning house? Well, I don't know whether you can see it, but in the Davidic covenant, God basically says to David, I'm going to build your... I don't need you to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build a house for you. But the house he's going to build for David isn't a physical house. It's not a physical structure. But rather, it's an everlasting kingdom in which a descendant of David will sit on the throne. The Lord declares to you, verse 11, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And with that covenant, God reveals what he wanted David to know and what we in 2019 need to know as well. And it's this. Dwelling with God isn't a matter of me building God a home. It's a matter of God building his home in me. That's what we need to understand. God building his home in me. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, and I hope you have, why don't you go back for a second to verse 8. If you look closely from verse 8 through to verse 17, you don't need to count them up. I just want you to notice how many times God uses the first person pronoun, I, there. I, I probably missed one or two, but I counted at least 12 times God uses the pronoun I to indicate something he's either done in the past or something he's going to do in the future. In other words, it's all God's work. He's fully capable of carrying it all out. He's not going to get any help from David. So why am I making such a fuss of all of this? Well, take a little bit of time to summarize some of the important aspects of this Davidic covenant. What do we see here? Well, I think it's very important, first of all, that we see that it's got near-term and far-term fulfillment. I don't know whether you understand this, but much of the times that you read prophecy in the Old Testament, Hebrew prophecy usually has a dual fulfillment. There is something that's going to happen pretty soon, but very often when you read it, there is something that is going to happen in the future. You see this quite often with prophecies about Jesus, where part of the prophecy maybe applies to his first coming, and another part of it applies to his second coming. For instance, do you remember the best example I can think of is when Jesus goes into the synagogue? Do you remember that in Nazareth? He opens up the scroll and he starts to read from Isaiah uh, 62. And he stops reading in the middle of verse 2. He sits down, tells the people, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why? I'm here. I've arrived. i fulfilled what the scripture says, but he finishes in the middle of verse 2 because the second half of verse 2 is all to do with judgment and vengeance. And that's not going to be fulfilled until Jesus returns. That's the future aspect. There's a near term aspect and a far term or future term aspect. And there are some parts of the Davidic covenant here in 2 Samuel 7 that clearly refer, for instance, to David's son Solomon, who's yet to be born. We see in verse 13, Solomon, uh, I mean, he's the one, isn't he? He's going to build the temple. He is going to build a temple for God's name. Verse 14, you see that when Solomon sins, God is going to discipline him, but he won't take the kingdom from him. So part of that covenant is going to be fulfilled in the near term. We, We understand that. But look at this. The other part of the covenant can't possibly refer to Solomon because Solomon's kingdom certainly isn't going to last forever. In fact, after the Babylonian captivity, which came about 400 years later, David will no longer have a descendant on the throne at all. So you need to look far further on into the future. If this prophecy is going to come true, and that's the test of all prophecy, whether it's fulfilled. If this is going to come true, Go forward. Well, we've gone forward 400 years, Babylonians. We're going to go forward another 600 years. So roughly a 1,000 years from the time that this covenant is made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And what do we read? Oh, what do we read? What do we read? Here's the far fulfillment of Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's here. It's the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're getting something that's near fulfillment and far fulfillment. David wouldn't, couldn't have any idea about all of this. He couldn't, could he? But flip me, we do, because we've got the whole of the New Testament, and we celebrate Christmas. David didn't, because we said that. But now, we're the other side of Christmas, and we say, wow, of course it's Jesus, Nothing, you see, nothing David or any other human being could construct could possibly contain an infinite God. And yet God has come to David, made a home in David's life. He's chosen David to be king when there was nothing David had done to earn that privilege. God had been with David every step of the way, but yet, David was out looking after sheep. And if God says, no, no, that's the one. Jesse, he's the boy I want. He's the son I want. Samuel, anoint him. And God is with him and he gives him victory over his enemies, great success as a a king. Why? Not because David deserved it, but because God is full of grace, full of mercy. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. A thousand years later, he would come to dwell in us because we're not capable of making a home for God through anything we can do. But God in his mercy and in his grace, he does it. Isn't that wonderful? That here in 2 Samuel chapter seven, we're actually seeing the very words of Luke chapter one, the archangel Gabriel speaking to Mary being fulfilled. Wow, that's fantastic. And a thousand years between them. What a coincidence, eh? (laughs) The second thing I think we see here is that it promises a physical dwelling. For Israel, I don't want to spend too long on this, but God promises David there in 2 Samuel 7 that one day Israel will have a physical place where they will live in peace. And Israel does have its own land again after it gained independence in 1948. certainly doesn't live in peace, though, does it? So that part of the covenant still awaits a future fulfillment. Well, If you read on to the book of Revelation, you'll start to understand a bit about that. And indeed, uh, the prophecies of Ezekiel. So there's a near-term and a far-term fulfillment going on here. There's a physical dwelling place for Israel here. It involves a father-son relationship. This is fantastic. Look at verse 14. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Now this is interesting. God reveals that David's offspring will be like a son to him. Now, he's certainly applying that to Solomon, isn't he? He's talking about Solomon. Of course he is. But what happens when you read Hebrews chapter 1, where the author quotes from this very chapter? You see, the most important father-son relationship is that between God the Father and his son Jesus. So you get this. For To which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? Today I've begotten you. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The author of Hebrews is clearly writing about Jesus. So here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we can only conclude that God is primarily referring to Jesus. Wow. A thousand years. (coughs) It seems like God is pointing ahead to the time when his son, Jesus, will make it possible for all who have faith in him to have an intimate relationship with the Father in which they become his sons and his daughters. Now, we've only begun to scratch the surface here and you want to get home for call the midwife, but I hope you're beginning to see why this chapter might be called the most important chapter in the Old Testament. Because it's just tucked away there and you can miss it and just think it's part of historical things working out. And yet, Jesus is being seen. You start to bring in the New Testament to understand what's going on there. Wow, you've got Jesus being seen. And for me, it's one of those lovely things that kind of, for me personally, helps me understand that this isn't blinking coincidence. How do you make things like that happen? Can you wangle things over a thousand years? You can't do that. This is a lovely evidence again for something marvellous and supernatural uh, going on. Here we have one of the clearest pictures in the entire Old Testament of Jesus and the role Jesus would have of bringing God to dwell in man. God doesn't need a house. God doesn't need a palace. If all the churches and chapels in Wales were knocked down, so what? honestly. So what? We'll meet in the coffee now. There we are. Those of you who like a greasy spoon, we'll go to Benito's. And those of you who are adventurous, we'll go to the commercial. But there we go. (laughs) It doesn't matter where you meet. It doesn't matter, does it? We understand that. It's It's not about buildings. That's not what this is about. God didn't need David to build a house for him. But blinking act, David did need God to build a house for him. And God wants to do the same for all of us. It's not about grand buildings, as if you can build a home for God. It's a matter of God building his home in you and in me. How do you respond to that? I I wonder what's going on inside of you. now. You might be mad at God about that idea. Might uh, go something like this, you know, God, here I am just trying to do something nice for you and you're going to reject my gift, flipping act. you know, I I give money to the upkeep of this building and everything. You might want to assert some authority and say, well, don't you realize who I am? I've got a standing order, you need to listen to me. Might be possible that you'll just ignore God altogether and just carry out what you want to do. Let's be honest about it now. Many churches and chapels all across Wales got built because of the pride and the arrogance and the ego of many a mine owner or landowner. There's plenty of competition. Oh, I built a better chapel than you did. The clamor for attention and approval. Fortunately, David was a whole lot more godly than me. And as a man who had a heart for God, he chooses a different path. Go back to the text again. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 18. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, sovereign Lord, and what's my family? That you have brought me this far. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? Oh, by the way, you remember that verb, yasib, dwell? Here it is again. Can you see it? Just about every single English translation I've looked at reads something like this. David sat before the Lord. The verb there? Yassib. Dwell. David didn't just stop for a quick chat. There's something profound going on here. David goes in and dwells with God. God had denied the building Permit. for for a building. And David's reaction, what's David's reaction? Look at it. He goes in and dwells with God. Who am I, Sovereign Lord? And what's my family that you've brought me this far? Didn't go off in a poody or a strop? No, no. It's very interesting, actually. His focus, if you read on in the text, fascinating. I was looking at this this afternoon his reaction is one of worship. It's about putting God first. Do you notice that? Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 18. The king went in, sat before the Lord and said, who am I? What have you brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual de- way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O oh sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will. You've done this great thing. and made it known to your servant, how great are you, O sovereign Lord. There is none like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You've established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, O oh Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, that so your name will be great forever. The men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Oh, Lord Almighty God of Israel, you've revealed this to your servant, saying, I'll build a house for you. So a servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O oh, Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O oh, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Woo! Brilliant. He worships. He worships God. Look how humble he is. What, what a prayer, eh? He is totally humble. I need to help you out here, by the way. Have a look at the text, will you? Verses 1 to 3. How is David referred to? First three verses, how is he referred to? Chapter 7, verse 1. The king. That's right. Absolutely. His name is never mentioned. He's the king. Probably indicates, at least to some degree, David is pretty impressed with himself in this position. Look what happens by the time you get to chapter 7, verses 4 through 17. How does, we, how does God refer to David? My servant. God, who had put David on the throne, isn't quite as impressed with David's position as he is, is he? So you've got David going around, well, I'm a king, I'm the king of the castle. You've got God saying, "Wait, hey, you're my servant, Paul. So, bit of a decision. David begins to pray, begins to worship, he's got a choice to make. Is he going to pray now then as king, or is he going to pray as servant? What's his attitude going to be? What does he choose? You see it? Servant. Servant. What's your attitude when you get before God? He humbled himself. The second thing there, really quickly, responded to God's revelation too. See that? You notice how he prayed to God about what God had just revealed to him. I'm pretty convinced we could learn a lot from that. You know, it revolutionise our prayer life and our worship. How often does God say something through a sermon and we blink and ignore it? How often has God met with you on a Sunday night, and uh, stirred your heart about something, and then you go home, put the you know, call the midwife, and, and forget about it? Isn't it time that we actually maybe acted upon what God is saying to us? What he's revealing to us through his word. Final thing, very quickly as I finish. He exalted God. Did you notice that? At the beginning of the chapter, David focused on what he wants to do for God. I want to build you a house, God. I want to build you a house. I want to get you into a persimmon home. I'm in a lovely, lovely place down here on this estate. Only the Powells have got a nicer place than I am. And yet his prayer is totally about exalting God. Time after time, he calls out and he, Lord God, proclaims the greatness of God, recounts all that God has done for him and for Israel, not thinking about himself, all about God. Hey, we've talked about a lot of things tonight, but I think if we could apply these things in our worship, I'm convinced it would radically transform us, and we need to understand that dwelling with God isn't a matter of me coming into a building and thinking that in some way I'm building a very nice place for God, thank you very much, no, 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 no. God is wanting to build a home in me, in you. And I want to ask you tonight as I finish, have you done that? Have you allowed God permanent residency in your home, in your heart? Or do you think that in some way by coming to this place, this house of prayer, that you are doing business with God and that's all it's about? Well, I don't think that washes. So I invite you as we close, just to bow your heads with me for a moment, as we pray together. Because, you know, just like David did, we all need to respond to what God's revealed to us through his word. It's possible some of you here never entered into a relationship with God. You've been trying to base that relationship on what you can do for him. Listen. Listen. It's about what God's already done for you. You've been trying to build him a home. He wants to make a home in you through faith in Jesus. If that's true for you, if you've never done that, I invite you to make that decision tonight. Just welcome him into the home of your heart, let him move in, take up residency. Perhaps some of you here this evening have been busy doing things for God, and yet there are things God never asked you to do. You just decided on your own without consulting him. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you to take some time this week to seek God's opinion. Go back into his word, talk to him about these things in prayer. And I hope each and every one of us tonight has a blessed assurance that Jesus is Lord, Saviour of our lives, and that he lives in our hearts by faith. Come, Lord, reside in us, that we may yasib, we may dwell with you and you with us for Jesus' sake.